welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. We all have struggles in life. We have barriers placed in front of us that as humans we're challenged to handle. Those struggles may include failing a test, getting a divorce, losing a job, missing a flight, or maybe a business deal that just falls apart. These all suck, no doubt. But the real question here is, how do you handle it? Do you fall apart, pout, complain, or do you get back up again? And then how do you handle the next issue the universe places in front of you? Well, this episode will certainly help you put life challenges in perspective. My guest and lifelong friend today is a two-time liver transplant recipient. She has lived with a liver disease most of her life. And back in 2015, we came to the brink of losing her. Thankfully, we did not. I believe that the reasons we have her today are not only because of her amazing doctors, but because of her endless positivity, relentless resilience, and belief in herself. We now joke about 2015, which was when she fell into a coma prior to her second liver transplant. We now laugh about minor life issues and complaints by saying, (laughs) you think you have a problem? Yeah, call me when you're in a coma. Hence the tongue-in-cheek title of this episode, how to GTFO of a coma. And she certainly did. Wendy Lipsy, at the age of 18, was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder and at that time was told by her doctors that one day she would need a life-saving liver transplant. After many years and many unsuccessful surgeries, she finally had a liver transplant in 2009. Her first donor was a 16-year-old boy named Christian. Without Christian's gift of donation, she would not be alive today. Six years after that liver transplant, her autoimmune disorder attacked her once again, but this time it was much worse. All of the toxins from her liver had gone to her kidney and brain. She was in ICU for many weeks and in and out of comas. While in a coma, the doctors told her family if she did not receive a liver and kidney Within 72 hours, she would not survive. Well, on March 2nd, 2015, she received the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. Without this gift, she would not be alive today. Her passion now is volunteering for LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, and she's been volunteering for them since 2008. She's a certified public speaker for LOPA and a patient advocate. She serves on the LOPA Foundation Board. Wendy says her life after transplant is incredible. She lives life to the fullest and never takes a single breath for granted. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today. I cannot tell you how much this means to me. And like I always do in the beginning of the podcast, I always ask, how do we know each other? Do you want to take that one or do you want me to? Gosh, I think we'll combine it. Um, I don't remember a time where we haven't known each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we go back from pre-K or kindergarten at Sunday school together. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a million years ago. Yeah. And we spent, as kids, we spent weekends at your house or at my house dancing to what, Liza Minnelli or Barry Manilow? I, I was going to say Barry Manilow, but that was embarrassing. I wasn't going to say that. I said it. I said it. I'm putting it out there. We listened to Barry Manilow on a record player. And Liza Minnelli. And, and Donny Osmond. And Donny Osmond. We're so old. So we, we, we had fun with the rock stars of the 70s and 80s, and now we're grown-ups, and I've had a pl- the pleasure of knowing you. Not really. I've had the pleasure of knowing you my entire life. Like you said, I don't remember not knowing you. I have no idea. But right? I don't. We were that little. So I'm really grateful that you're on with me today, and I know, th- I know that your story is going to resonate with our listeners because it's very important, because the challenges you have faced in your life have been tremendous. And you have overcome them and persevered. So thank you for, for joining thank me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Um, I, I'm so excited to get to talk to you and chat mm-hmm. with your listeners. And um, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Okay. So let's start, Miss Lipsy. My first question is the typical question. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about where you're from, about your fabulous son, Luke, all that good stuff so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Okay. I am Wendy Lipsy. I was born right here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I have a son who is 23 years old. Um, he is about to graduate college and he works for a wealth management company. Um, and he is the best thing. He is the biggest blessing in my life. Um, he's a miracle child. Um, and you'll kind of, that'll unfold in the story, but, uh, I have he is two super. Shelties, two little dogs who They're I love. Super They're super. They're so cute. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, life is good. No, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I do a lot of public speaking and motivational speaking. Um, and that unfolds in my story too. It's kind of where it, my whole story kind of brings me back to where I am now in my life. As it I progress. does. It does. Um, because your life has, has presented different challenges from childhood when we were dancing to Barry Manilow and Lise Mandelli to adulthood. So why don't you let us start with your early years? Okay. Um, well, to say I, I, I went to university laboratory school in Baton Rouge and school was always such a challenge for me. It didn't matter how hard I studied, how hard I tried. Um, Things weren't clicking for me. Um, Spelling, no problem. Reading was a little bit of a challenge. Comprehending what I read was a challenge. And math, uh, math is still a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't know why. We didn't know what was going on. But um, I had tutors all the time from first grade up to sixth grade every day. Um, I go to dance class, straight from dance class. I would go home and meet a tutor or go to LSU and there'd be a tutor. And, uh, it didn't seem to make a difference because it just was, I wasn't, um, being taught properly. Um, and my parents knew something was not quite right. And, um, in sixth grade they had me tested. Um, and the results came back that I had a learning disability, dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was in, when I was in the sixth grade, so however old you are in the sixth grade, I can't even think 10, 11, 12 uh, 11. Yeah. Um, but back then really dyslexia wasn't a thing. You didn't hear of it as much. So, um, it was scary. 
Um, and it definitely had its challenges. Um, but my parents knew after talking to a lot of people that the best thing for me was going to be to change schools um, to another school that was called, um, it's specialized in kids with ADD, ADHD, and dyslexia. And um, they, they taught kids tools and how, they had teachers there that taught kids like me how to learn um, and how to learn and, you know, be successful. So um, at sixth grade, I had to change schools and it was scary. Um, I was scared I wouldn't meet any friends because I had a lot of friends at U High. Um, but I, I moved on, went, went to, the, to the school, DePaul, which is now called Brighton. Um, I absolutely loved it. Um, I had all straight A's all the three years that I was there. Um, I was extremely successful. And in fact, I loved it so much that when it was time for me to go back in the ninth grade to university high, I really didn't want to go back because I loved my friends and I was successful and I got to taste what success felt like. And it felt so good that I didn't want to go back to you high because they didn't have teachers there that knew how to teach me and with my dyslexia. Um, but it only went to the eighth grade. So I had to go back, but I brought the tools that I learned at DePaul with me to help me overcome any of the challenges through my entire high school career at U High. And without those tools, I would not have graduated and gone off to college. What's interesting about what you said is you were able to taste success finally when you yes. were at, at the school. So that that's was my first contrast. taste. Yeah. I tasted failure. I tasted a lot of failure. Yeah. Um, I was getting test grades back, Fs, Fs, Ds, Fs. If I got a C, it was a great day. I was excited. Um, but when I was just getting A's, A's, and my report cards were 4.0s, I, I became, oh, that's not the right, right word. Um, I, like I, you said, I tasted success and I liked it. And it made me want to try harder mm-hmm. at everything in my life because I'm thinking if you can work hard and be successful, you can overcome anything. You, you just have to have a lot of determination. And I definitely do not lack determination um, no, you with don't. anything that I do to this day. Right. Well, it also increased your confidence. It did. I, w- I was not, I became a new person. I really did. I was not scared to raise my hand in class mm-hmm. or to read a passage out loud because I had tools, you know, little simple tools um, like it would be intimidating for me to look at an entire page filled with words and sentences. They just ran on together, but I learned, and I still, I'm using this tool right now, but I, w- I would get a blank piece of paper, which I learned it to Paul and put it on the sentence that I'm currently reading. And then when I would read that sentence, move the blank paper down to the next. So I was only look taking one bite at a time instead right. of looking at the whole page. I was only seeing one sentence, but I use that tool to this day. Right. It's a transferable tool. And you're adulting yeah. with it. So. I am. And I, I, I'm, I'm literally, it's helping me right now with my notes and things. I, I'm just going through one thing at a time. Because if I look at too much at one time, it's overwhelming. And yeah. um, this breaks it down. They always say never bite off more than you can chew. This is what yep. I do. Good. Good for you. Well, I'm proud of you. And as kids, I remember you going to the different school, but I remember you being unflappable. Like I remember it being very matter of fact 
and kind of F it, if you will. I'm going, you know, it's no big deal. And then I'm going back to you high. It was just kind of part of life. It was very, it was very matter of fact because I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there wasn't like, here's three options, Wendy, you can do A, B or C. There was one choice, one option, and that was going to DePaul. So I had to make the best decision that I could. And I was only in sixth grade. It wasn't like I, I, I knew much else except this was a decision my parents thought was best for me and I trusted them. Um, and I thank goodness I did because, you know, but I didn't lack confidence in life, uh, only in school. Like I'd be the first right. one to get on a stage and make up a dance and sing and dance in front of hundreds of people of as you did with me. Uh-huh. Um, but um, in school, it was a challenge. And I was definitely, I had no self-confidence in school until I, you know, came out of my shell and learned tools to, you know, to be successful. Right. Right. And to rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. It was like a good restart button. Yeah. Well, that was your first challenge in life. And then there were more into your teen years. So um, will you tell us about what happened to you when you got in your teen years? Yes. So in my teen years is when I went back to university high and still had my tutors every single solitary day. And my, no, I did not have straight A's. You know, I was struggling to get by back at U high with, you know, B's and C's and some D's, but I was making it work. Um, so, you know, life was good and I, I was, you know, getting along and using my tools. But when I was 18 years old, I was a senior graduating high school. I wasn't feeling well and I had been, I hadn't been feeling well for quite some time. And I was missing a lot of school because I would wake up not feeling well. And my mom was constantly struggling. Like she not want to go to school because of her confidence. Does she want to stay home? And it wasn't about that. I was really sick, but you know, some kids like I have, I have a stomach ache and just cause they have an ang- are anxious about taking a test or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really was sick. Um, so my mom brought me to a gastroenterologist and they did a bunch of blood work. And come to find out, I they did a liver biopsy because the blood work indicated there was something wrong with my liver and had a liver biopsy. And it turned out I had a very rare liver disease, primary sclerosing cholangitis. Um, and meanwhile, I really, I was very concerned about the liver disease, but I wanted to get on with my life and go to college. Um, I was accepted to Brunel Women's College in Gainesville, Georgia. I was going to be a broadcast journalism major. Um, so I was excited to get on with my life and go to college and start, my, my, you know, another chapter of my life. Right. What did the, I remember those days too. What did the doctors tell you at that point when you were diagnosed? Did they tell you, they, you know, what this meant for you, what you could expect in the coming years? How did they lay yeah. this out? Um, the doctor um, had said, you know, you will this is a very slow progressive liver disease, very slow progressive. It might be years and years, but he said one day you will need a life-saving, you will need a liver transplant. And so when someone tells you someday, you're, you're not thinking, you know, right now, you're just thinking sometime later in the future. Um, and with that, I was just thinking, okay, well, it's slow progressive. Like he's, he, it could be, 10 years, 15 years, you know, 
So I, I was on medication to help maintain, you know, my liver function numbers, but I, I still wanted to go on to college. And with that, I did go to college in Georgia and got into a sorority, lived in the sorority house. Um, and then that first summer, I went away with one of my good friends to live in St. Simon's Island in Georgia. I was a day camp athletic director, which is so weird because I'm wow. not athletic. I was the <laughs> athletic director of a day camp in St. Simon's Island. And by night, I was a hostess of a restaurant, hotel, at a hotel restaurant. You were um, living the dream. I was just doing dream. my thing, you know, like happy. But I, I became very sick that summer and noticed that the whites of my eyes were becoming very yellow, um, jaundice, but, but I really didn't know. I wasn't familiar with it. Um, I couldn't keep anything down. Everything I ate, I would throw up and I was losing weight. And I remember calling my parents and I'm like, I, I think that liver disease thing that the doctor talked about, you know, just one year ago is progressing. I, I think I need, you need to get me to a specialist and long story short, they called a specialist or the doctor did at Duke university in um, North Carolina. My parents flew to St. Simon's, got me, brought me to um, Duke university where I had a um, procedure that made my common bile duct bigger than it needed to be. So the bile would flow and excrete through the liver and that surgery that they said would be temporary held me for over 22 years until I did need a liver transplant. That's a long time. A long time. And there were, go ahead. There's a lot of obstacles between that time, you know, that definitely occurred. Right. Right. That's what I was going to ask you about is like in that time frame, that the time that that procedure bought you, what did anything else happen? Well, I, um, I, I ended up in 1994. I, I got married. Um, I'd been dating my now ex-husband, um, which is another obstacle, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, but uh, I, I got married in 1994, and we were told that I would never be able to have children. Um, and that was a hard pill to swallow for both me and my husband, but um, we we were we were just going to have to live with that. There was there was there was not another option at that point. Um, meanwhile, I was I, I had left before all this happened. I'm sorry. I left Brunel after two years and decided I wanted to transfer to Loyola in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and I was there for a year and then decided I wanted to go into nursing. So I was a nurse at, uh, in Baton Rouge um, for a few years, and, and then it's right when I got married. And after about four years working as a nurse, I was catching every virus that came into the doctor's office. If a patient was coming in, I worked for a family practice doctor. Patient came in with a stomach virus. Within two days, my immune system was so low from this liver disease, I, I, I had the stomach virus. If a patient came in with strep throat, I had strep throat. Um, so I was married in 1994, and in 1998, my ex-husband and I, or my husband at the time, I don't know how to say that, um, uh, we went and talked to the doctors, and we said, you know, I'm really, you know, we, my husband had said, you know, Wendy's really doing well right now. She's really not having a lot of health issues with her liver. 
you know, and I was asking, you know, is there a chance that I could have children because I'm doing well? Like I still didn't need a liver transplant. Um, the doctors looked at all of my numbers and my numbers looked pretty good as far as, far as somebody with liver disease. And the doctors all agreed after having got, we called it their like summit meeting and said, you know, if you're going to try to have kids, now's your chance because your liver disease is going to progress. And we, you know, we can't tell you how you're going to be in three years, but right now, based on your numbers, you should try. If you're going to, if you're going to try right now is it. So we tried and I, I don't know how, but I did, I do know how, but, um, I, I got pregnant pretty quick and um, I had to quit my job as a nurse because, again, being pregnant and, and low immune system and catching every virus every the, that I was getting, you know, patients were coming in with, the doctors really said, you need to have early, reti- go into early retirement um, and, you know, hang out at home with this. So I did. I quit my job, which I loved. I loved my job. Um, I quit my job and I was very, um, I was pretty healthy all during my pregnancy. I, I I did not have morning sickness. I had all day, every day sickness. Um, the sound of car keys being picked up would make me throw up. Um, but it wasn't a rough pregnancy. It was bad. Like it was every, you know, I mean, but it was just, it wasn't because of my liver. I just had the all day sickness for nine months. Um, then I did have a very successful delivery. The only thing that wasn't successful is that my son looks exactly like my ex-husband. But other than that, all is good. But uh, He does. He does look like him. He, he does. does. Especially his eyes. Everything about him, he looks exactly like his dad. I'm glad he doesn't act like his dad. I mean, his dad might be listening to this podcast at some point, <laughs> but oh well. Um, just being real. Um, but yeah, there were uh, there always you know, in my life up to even that point, there were always obstacles, you know, um, growing up with, you know, dyslexia and always having to find a way to take a test, whether the teacher had to give, you know, give me it, give it to me verbally. There were always obstacles, but I had to, I had to, um, get an action and and always be in ready go mode because I knew I was always going to have to find my way around obstacles. And then later in life with a liver disease, um, what, you know, I was a nurse and then getting pregnant, having to quit my job. And, you know, there were always obstacles that I had to overcome, but I feel like I always put myself in that proactive mode, um, to over, always overcome the obstacles. And I, I just never have allowed any obstacles to get in my way. No. And we were joking earlier before we started rec- recording that you're like crisis control. I swear you could be crisis manager is a career because you have a backup plan for everything. You have a way to pivot for rough situations. Like you're always ready for anything. I've always, you know, and it sounds bad. I've always got an agenda, but it's not like a typical when somebody, well, they've got an agenda. It's not that kind of agenda. Um, yeah, I've always got a, I have to, you know, I am a high anxiety, high energy person and people like me, have got to always have a backup plan and mm-hmm. it's like an agenda and it's not like a hidden agenda, but it's a backup plan. Like I already know if I'm driving to go out of town and there's poss- possibly could be a, a, a traffic, literally you, ha- I've got a backup plan. Like, okay, I'm going to have to get off the interstate and you know, you always have to have a backup plan and I always have a backup plan because that helps lessen my anxiety. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it does. And it's how you raised yourself. It's my go. You will. Yeah. It's your go mode. Well, will you take us to your first liver transplant? Will you take yes. us up to that moment of when you realized that you had to get the transplant done and how that transpired? Okay. Well, my son was born in 1998. So he grew up knowing that his mom was sick and he grew up very mature, very fast. Which, and he's still very mature, by the way. Yes. Always had a hot, very amazing uh, like verbal skills, still does. Um but he, he grew up knowing that his mom was sick and he grew up knowing his mom would one day need a liver transplant. And you have to grow up fast knowing that because you have to hear conversations with family members that you don't necessarily want a child to hear, but you can't shoo them out of the room every time you're, you're talking about your life. Um, so in 2000, you know, in and out of the hospital a lot, um, uh, finally was sick enough to be listed on the, on the, on the transplant waiting list in 2007 at auctioneer in new Orleans. They're amazing. Um, I got put on the list in 2007 and during that time I'm raising my son, I was married. Um, and I, I was very, very sick, very thin. I had pneumonitis, pneumonia in both my lungs Mm. and it, it added for about six months and I had to, drag an oxygen tank around with me everywhere I went because I could, I couldn't breathe without my oxygen tank. So it, it was rough. Like I always, you know, if I was going to pick up Luke from school, it was me, my person, my oxygen tank for six months. Um, but I, you know, you just learn to adjust. But during that time, it was a long, long wait. And it was in 2009, two years after I was listed that I finally got the phone call that it was my turn, my time. I was number one on the list in Louisiana, number one in the nation for a liver transplant and the sickest one. And they found a perfect match for me and told me to come down for my liver transplant. And that was two years after I was listed. In that two-year period, were you scared? I've never asked you that. Were you scared when you were waiting? Definitely. Mm. I can't say that I was scared. I can't say that. I was anxious, which is a form of being scared. I was anxious and I was, um, I was always anticipating, you know, they told you always have your cell phone on because you don't know when you're getting a call. It could be at two in the afternoon or it could be at 2 Mm a.m. I wasn't I was I wasn't as scared about getting the transplant as I was about my son not having a mother. Right. That was my fear is if I didn't make it, my son wouldn't have a mom. That was more if I if if we were gonna say that I was scared, that's what I was scared about. Did you let Luke know those were your feelings? No. Okay. No. To, 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 and, today does he know that those are, were your feelings? Yes. Okay. Because in 2009, at 10 o'clock at night, I got a phone call um, on February 10th, which is coming up soon, um, that there was a perfect match for me and that they they said, get some rest. That was at 10 o'clock at night. We'll call you when we know for sure if it's a perfect match. So get some rest. And I, I remember hanging up thinking, get rest. Like, 
what do they think I'm going to crawl in bed and go to sleep? Like, yeah. whatever. You're getting a liver, go to bed. Yeah, go to bed, get go some rest. I'm like, yeah, right. So I remember at about 1 a.m. the phone rang and they, hi, is this Wendy Lipsy? Yes. They said, do you have someone in the room with you? And I'm like, yes, my husband, John. They said, well, can you put him on speaker? They had to make sure that the patient, me, was aware enough. Like if I wasn't too sick, I, that I knew what they were telling me. Hey, you've got a liver. You need to drive down to auctioner right now. They needed to make sure that my caretaker that was with me at the time was going to be able to bring me and that I was coherent enough for this conversation. Yes. So um, with that, they said, all right, as soon as you can get, you know, finished, packed up, loaded up, you know, get on here, you know, down here to auctioner. So that's the, that was a very pivotal time because I had packed my suitcase in 2007 when I was on the list because the transplant nurse had told me, you could get a call in five days saying you have a perfect match or you could be waiting five years. Like, we didn't know. So I packed my suitcase. Well, I'd lost so much weight waiting on the transplant in those two years. All the pajamas and warm-up suits I'd packed were too big for me because I'd lost so much weight. But finished packing everything up. And I'll never forget that night at what, like around 1.30 in the morning, my son, who was at that time nine, woke up and came in the kitchen because we were rushing to get out the door mm-hmm. and my in-laws were coming to stay with Luke. And he woke up and he yawned and Aww. stretched his arms and I'm, you know, emulating him now. And he said, mom, like, what's going on? What's everybody doing? And I remember getting down to his level saying, Luke, mom got the call. I'm getting a liver transplant tonight. Um, and, you know, and he looked at me and he kind of looked weary and he said, mom, am I ever going to see you again? Oh, gosh. Yeah, because he knew the risks. Um, he knew I, I could live and yeah. he knew that I could die. But at that moment, I had my backup plan, Holly. Of course you did. My proactive plan. <laughs> and I, I became, I had to go into super mom mode and I immediately, without hesitation, said, absolutely, you're going to see me again. I'm going to be a new and improved mom. I'm going to get a new liver. You know, I'll be back to, you know, being your mom. We're going to get to do all the things we've never done. You know, we're going to get to go outside and throw the basketball and not have to just sit inside and play Uno and watch movies. So I had to reassure him right then and there that I was going to, I was going to be, you know, picture perfect health within, you know, a matter of days or weeks. So I definitely had the backup plan for that question. But I love how you how you handled it. You know, you're very positive without a doubt. Absolutely. That had to make him feel comfortable too. Well, he was going to go to school that next day because I, I wanted to keep him in his routine. And he was just a little bit too young to sit in the ICU waiting room. So I, I had to give him, I wanted to give him hope. And I think it also subliminally subliminally gave me hope. Get, then it you, was know, on. I, you know, like, yeah. I'm like, I got this, like, I got this. And I, I had to make sure my son knew that, you know, those words of encouragement before I left. Right. Right. Good mom, Wendy. Good job. Thank you. Um, how, what was the, once you had your transplant, what was the recovery like? What was it like going home? And, and I, I was in, I was in the hospital a a very long time, unfortunately, that time. Um, I developed an, a staph infection in my, my intestines. 
Um, they had to go back in and open me up. I had like 87 staples. Um, they had to go back in and I had to have surgery again. They oh. had to open me back up and um, remove out, flush out all the infection, staple me back up. Then about a week later, one of the drains that was in my stomach was not clear like it should be. And they realized that one of the bile ducts in my liver was like, had, was, had necrosis. Oh, it was like no. scarred. So they had to go back in and open me up. Oh my time. God. Yeah. And take out all the staples again. And they had to cut the necrotic tissue from my bile ducts and like reattach the liver so I was in the hospital a good couple of months before I was able to get home. And again, there were obstacles. There, were obstacles. Just, there was a few obstacles, but I absolutely was not going to let those get in my way. I had to, I've always thought of myself as an eternal optimist. Yes. And with things, obstacles in your way, such as that you have to be. If not, you'll become very depressed, and, and I, that's not the person I want to be. Um, I, 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 so I just I had to. Be, there, there was I knew there was going to be something brighter in my life, and knowing that I had a son waiting at home for me was my bright light. And I had to get better, and I had to become super mom. And um, and thank goodness I was able to do that. And within a few months, I was at home. Yes. Recovering comfortably in my, and I had a wonderful recovery. It, I mean, it took me about a year to feel like Wendy again. Yeah. But, um, it, it was, it was, it was life. Life was good. I, I was, so you I healed. felt like I had a whole new lease on life, which I did. I remember I thought the same thing too. I'm like, oh, that's over. I'm glad that's done. She's healthy. Chapter closed. Chapter closed. Huh? I know we thought. So, okay, let's go to the second liver transplant because, yes, well, it's the second one. I think before I can even get to the second transplant, I, I need to let people know about these damn obstacles. <laughs> um, so that my transplant was in 2009. I was doing great. Fast forward to 2014, going through a divorce. Um. And uh, it was the best thing. It was a very mutual decision. Um, it was the best thing for me, and it was the best thing for Luke. And um, then at that same time, I was having problems with kidney stones. I mean, literally right at the same week that I had my ex-husband move out, I had kidney stones, and I was rushed to my urologist office and they were going to rush me into surgery and the doctor got delayed in another surgery. And I was waiting with my mother and my father in the waiting room, screaming bloody murder because this kidney stone was very painful. They were not giving any pain medicine to me because I was about to go into surgery. So they didn't want to give me pain medicine and then put me on anesthesia. Oh, uh, it would just be too much. for my So meanwhile, I was screaming in pain and my blood pressure was ridiculously high by the time they finally got me into surgery. Like it was like 240 over 120. Oh my God. When they finally got me back into surgery. And I remember waking up from surgery and looking around and noticing that out of my peripheral vision, all I could see was little pixels. I, I 
it was like I had tunnel vision. And I remember telling my mom that and they thought, oh, well, you're just waking up from anesthesia, you know, just give it time to wear off. Well, after a week, I, I, I could just see these black pixels on the side, you know, and flashes of blue lights in my peripheral vision area. And I went and saw a neurologist. They did an MRI. They thought maybe I had MS. I had steroid treatments galore trying to reverse this. I was sent to Cleveland Clinic to find out I had peripheral neuropathy, which is I lost my peripheral vision. And they think I had a stroke during my kidney stone surgery. So that another obstacle, you know, one more thing that I've I've got no choice but to deal with. Like, what am I going to do? Right. Um, So I, you know, became proactive, went to Cleveland Clinic. They did all the testing. I absolutely failed all my vision tests, peripheral vision tests. And to this day, I have complete tunnel vision. Um, You know, I I drive, I have to turn my head and I have cat-like reflexes. Um, (laughs) But I I don't have any peripheral vision. Um, So that was in 2014. So meanwhile, going through a divorce, kidney stone, uh, lost my peripheral vision, Uh um, decided to sell my house, which sold in a matter of a couple of weeks. And I decided I was going to build a new house. Well, obviously it wasn't built. So my son and I had to move in with my parents. Thank goodness. They took us in. We lived upstairs. Um, During that time, I noticed in 2014, I was losing a lot of weight. Didn't know why wasn't eating a lot. I mean, that caused you to lose weight, obviously. Um, I noticed my eyeballs were a little dingy, like a little yellowy. I would always wear sunglasses. My hair was thinning. Didn't know why I was losing hair, so I would wear a baseball cap. Meanwhile, my house is built, and my son and I are moving in. But I am sick, and I'm a little too weak to unpack boxes. And I are in my In my mind, I knew that it was something going on with my liver, but I didn't want to admit it. That was I kind of I was in denial. Yep, that was my next question: is were thoughts creeping in? Of I think oh, absolutely, thoughts were creeping in, Mm -hmm. and we didn't know it at the time. And we'll address that again, I, I guess, in a few minutes. But we didn't know it at the time. But all of the toxins from my liver when your ammonia levels are very high, they go to your brain and you develop something called hepatic liver brain encephalopathy. So the toxins, the ammonia level was so high, it was going into my brain. So I wasn't able to make, I didn't really have much emotion. They were kind of like coding my emotions. Um, I wasn't, I got, I love to cook. I cook every day, every night. I literally could not cook. I couldn't boil water. My brain would not process things. And I was in complete denial that I was sick. And finally, um, one one day, it was a pivotal day, but it's that's a whole other story. Um, my son realized that something was not right with me. And my parents were out of town. And my son, who was 15 at the time, called, got my cell phone, called my liver doctor at Oxford and said, there is something wrong with my mom. And he goes, you need to bring her in to see me. He had just gotten his learner's permit. He threw me in the car with my suitcase and drove me to New Orleans at Auctioner where I had blood work. And the doctor said, right now you're in liver failure. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for making the call and driving. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. 
he knew something was wrong with his, like I uh-huh. couldn't get up to come in the kitchen to eat a meal. And I wasn't, he would put water by my bed and I couldn't even pick up my water cup. And he was like, something's not right. He'd already called my parents who were out of town and they were like, all right, well y'all tell us what y'all can do and we'll fly home immediately. And I, I think we were on the way to auction when Luke called my parents and said, I'm bringing her to new Orleans and they're probably going to admit her before we even knew I was in liver failure. Yeah. Yeah. So they got on the plane and took a red eye straight to new Orleans. Um, the doctors in new Orleans put me in the hospital and they did absolutely every treatment imaginable, every steroid treatment, every gamma globulin. I can't even remember the name IV treatments trying to revive my liver and it wasn't working. Um, my parents got into town. Um, the doctors had done everything that they could and they had sent me home until they could come up. I, I was still waiting on some liver biopsies, which would be a couple days. So the doctors like sent me home to kind of get my affairs in order and pack a suitcase and mm-hmm. do a few things like that. Um, so uh, I get home and the doctors are, you know, I'm getting sicker. I'm definitely not getting any better. And I, I'm, not people are texting me and calling me and I'm really not able to text because I, I I literally lost the ability to spell oh, wow. because of the brain fog, the brain encephalopathy. Um, yeah, we were worried about you. I remember yeah. I, I texted you, I sent you a Facebook message and I was like, this is so weird. This isn't like yeah. Wendy. I was not responding to yeah. anybody. All my closest friends were trying to reach me and I just absolutely was non-responsive. Um, and my parents and Luke, you know, got me back to Oxner, New Orleans. And um, that was that was around <coughs> February mm-hmm. and in middle of February, got me in the hospital. And um, the doctors had come in the room and they said to my parents, we, we don't have good news. Now, I was awake, um, but I was in and out of a coma. Um I could not answer the doctors and I couldn't respond, but I could hear them talking. And the doctors came in the room. I was hooked up to tons of IVs and machines beeping, you know, left and right. And the doctor said, listen, we don't have good news. Um, Wendy's liver is in failure. We've done everything we can to save it. She's in rejection. Mm. And, but not only is she going to need another liver transplant, she needs a kidney transplant as well all the toxins from my liver that had gone to my brain had gone to my kidneys and my kidneys were now in fail in failure. Unbelievable. Yeah. So here he go, go again with obstacles. Right. You know, um, this time I didn't have a backup plan. This is a time that I wasn't proactive. Um, I was sick. I could, I couldn't have come up with a plan if I had tried like my brain. I was, I was, I, literally in a coma. I was not responsive. Um, I wasn't eating. I wasn't talking. I wasn't drinking. They were literally giving me fluids and medications to keep me alive. And there's nothing you could do. Nothing. There was nothing I could do. Um, I'll never forget to this day. My son took a picture of me when I was in a coma and I did not know he had taken a picture of me till years after, um, and to this day, I look at that picture and it haunts me. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it wasn't me. I was very yellow. I weighed 68 pounds. Mm-hmm. I was just a shell. Um, 
And this was not an obstacle at that time that I could overcome. No. Um, but at, at, at the 72, the doctors had said, it, look, if Wendy doesn't get a liver and kidney in 72 hours, she's not going to live. And I remember my mom calling, telling me, I'm going to call your sister and I'm going to call your nieces, my sister's children and Luke and everybody and to come wish you luck. They, they, the doctor did come in the room at 72 hours and said, listen, we don't know how this happened, but we did find a perfect match, a liver and a kidney. We have to go out of our region to, to make sure it's a perfect match. But this was 11 o'clock in the morning. And they said, by 8 o'clock tonight, if it's a match, we're going into surgery and Wendy's having a liver and a kidney transplant. So my mom was calling my sister and my and. and and calling my, my son at school because my sister was going to go to school and check my son and my nieces out and come to New Orleans. And I'll never forget my mom saying, I'm going to call them to come wish you luck with surgery. But I remember thinking, but I couldn't say it. I could not verbalize that they were not coming to wish me luck. My mom was having them come so I could tell them goodbye. Oh. And I do remember, and another obstacle, like I do remember very clearly my son getting there and um, I remember pleading with my sister to be his, to my sister's Laurie, will, are you, are, will you be Luke's mom? Mm-hmm. And, and my sister said to me, you know, Luke does have a dad, but we were divorced. So to me, that wasn't an option. You <laughs> know, either. Um, and I'm like, yeah, he does. And I had to call my ex-husband and, and I, I had to, we weren't super friendly, but I, I had to go into that back, that plan, that proactive mode. And I had to say, you know, Luke is going to need a dad. And he, that was Luke's dad. And I said, I asked him, I said, do you know the difference between a dad and a daddy? And he, I remember him thinking, no. And, and by the way, during this conversation, I'm in and out of a coma and I'm, I'm not speaking like I am now. I, I, I was speaking very slow I had to choose my words carefully because I could not use big medical terms. Yeah. So it didn't sound like this at all, just for the record at all. But I had to basically ask my son, my husband, ex-husband, do you know the difference between a dad and a daddy? And he goes like, no, he's like sounded puzzled. And I'm like, a dad, you know, is, is there, they make sure you do your homework. Um, they make sure you're eating your meals and, you know, basic stuff. But a daddy is something different. A daddy loves you unconditionally. They hug you when you need a hug. They laugh when you when you need to laugh. I, I, I know you know how to be a dad, but do you know how to be a daddy? Because right now Luke needs a daddy. Good for you, Wendy. So that was my backup plan. That was my proactive mode. That was um, a good plan. And he said, you know, yeah, I, I know how to do all of that. And I believed it. Um, and with that being said, I was hauled off to surgery. I told my family goodbye. I begged my nieces to take care of Luke. I begged them to make sure Luke went to his first homecoming dance in high school. I begged them to make sure that he, you know, got all these first times, first dates. Like I wanted them to look out for him and protect him. You were, you were getting prepared. Yeah. I was being proactive. I was making sure my ducks were in a row. I wanted to make sure my parents were going to be there for him. His other grandparents, you know, knew everything going on. I wanted to make sure everything was in place because that fear I had five years before my, my being afraid and being scared was 
not necessarily of me dying. Was I was scared of my son not having a mom. Right. Right. Totally understandable. So with that, I was brought into surgery um, right when I was, you know, in, in and out of my coma. And um, <laughs> the next time I woke up, I was in ICU on a ventilator. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, that wasn't fun. Don't no. recommend it. No. Can you tell yeah. the listeners, just for the sake of understanding what that felt like? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's very um, describable, unfortunately. Um, I woke up, and I remember my son was to the right side of me, and my mom and dad were to the left side of me. And I realized my arms were in restraints. Apparently, I was. Tr- I kept trying to pull the breathing tube, the ventilator out of my throat. And I needed that to breathe because I wasn't strong enough to breathe on my own. I was very weak, weighing 68 pounds. I was just so, so very, very sick. Um, uh, so I was restrained and uh, it feels like being buried alive. That's the best way I can describe it. If you're being buried alive and you can't get out and there's nothing you can do about it, that's what we had discussed about it. it was, it's like being buried alive. Um, it's a very helpless feeling. Yeah. Um, I was very scared. Um, I knew I couldn't breathe on my own, but this breathing tube was, I mean, it was, it was horrifying and I was very scared all during, I never had COVID. Thank you. Thank goodness. But for all the people out there that were, you know, mad about having to wear masks, I was like, if you don't like wearing a mask, you are not going to be like being on a ventilator. Um, Mm -hmm. cause it was very scary. Um, but I, I, uh, I kept tr- trying to write air- notes in the air. Like I wanted to tell my family things, but I, I was in restraints and I didn't have pen and paper. So I was trying to like scribble words in the air the best that I could with being in restraints. Um, but then a couple days later, maybe two days later, they took me off the ventilator and I was surviving and I was thriving. And um, the brain fog, the brain encephalopathy slowly lifted. Um, and, uh, the whole time I had the brain encephalopathy, I could describe that. It felt like I was in a dark, dark tunnel and there were no lights. Mm. There wasn't a way in, there wasn't a way out. I was stuck in a tunnel. Uh, and a lot of people feel that way when they're going through depression, there's, they're they're stuck in a tunnel with no lights and there's no way out. It's when they reach out for help and they get on the right medications that they see a light at the end of the tunnel. It was a lot like that. Um, and I remember waking up from a surgery and the toxins had been lifted from my brain and they weren't on my li- in my liver and kidney any longer. And all of a sudden I could see that bright light at the end of the tunnel and I saw a bright light inside of the tunnel and I could see my future and I could see my life with my son. And I mean, within a few days, I was back to being windy again. I mean, Within a, within a, like four days. I know that was amazing. Cause you came to the hospital. We came, we, yeah, we came to the hospital. You came, no, you came by yourself the first time to the hospital. You were, you were making rounds at the hospital. Yes. For your work then. And then you and Abe came and saw me at another time, but you, you came to see me in the hospital. Yeah. Like a week maybe out from yeah. this one. I was still very weak. I wasn't really able to get out of the bed and walk a lot. Yeah. But when we saw you the second time, I mean, it was like you were back to yourself. Yeah, Wendy. we were at the hotel that was connected to the hospital. 
Um, I was still very, very weak at that point. That was, you know, about a month or so after, about a month after my surgery, I, I needed a walker um, for a couple months. Even when I got home back to Baton Rouge after my surgery, I needed a walker. I was so weak. I couldn't hold myself up. If I was sitting in a chair, I needed the walker to pull me up because I couldn't get up out of a chair because I was so, so weak. I had so much bone loss. Um, and I was extremely frail and fragile. I remember. I remember because you, I mean, you had to be close to 80 pounds by then. Mm, not even, I'm not even sure if I was even close to that. I was clo- probably closer to 75. Yeah, I'm almost to 80, but not quite 80. It was just great to see you get healthy again. I mean, it was remarkable how well you recovered. It, it was remarkable. And, 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 you know, it taught me so much about life, you know, that life is so short. We are, you know, given one chance at life, in my case, two or three chances at life. And we have to make use of our time on earth valuable. We've got to be present in everything that we do. You know, so many of us go to dinner with friends and family and we're on our phones or we're texting people. And you've got to be so present in your life right now because this is the only chance you're going to get at life. And it's like, put the phones away, turn off the ringers, stop texting, be present with the people that you're with right now and be in the moment and do what you love and love what you do now before it's too late. Right. Right. Because you've Which seen- I think I probably- Skipped a few topics. I'm sorry. No, it's okay because you've had a glimpse of what's on the other side or getting close to it. And you know you have to make the most of it. I did. I had to make the most of it. I had to make the most of it fast. Um, You know, life was passing me by. It wasn't because of me not trying to. I was. I'm always. I've never been a negative Nelly. I'm a very positive person. Mm -hmm. Um. I could be covered head to toe in hives. I could be throwing up all the same breath, but I'm going to find a positive spin on it. I really am. Um, you would. There would be a silver lining somewhere. There's always going to be. Like I said, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I There's got to be a light at the end of a tunnel, at the end of the tunnel. And there was. And I saw that light. And um, it, it did. It taught me so much. Um, I, I would never want anyone to be in this position. Um, I, I would never want anyone to have to go through the obstacles that I've been through. And, and I've been through the obstacles between dyslexia, liver um, disease, um, divorce, losing my peripheral vision, liver transplant one, transplant two, liver and kidney. Getting the F out of a coma. Out of the, the whole thing. Yeah, the getting out of thing. a coma. The whole thing. Yes, everything. All of it culminates and and, and you've got, so you've got to look back on your life. And this is like my message to people and to your viewers. Um, and they're, you know, getting the heck out of the situation they're in is like, look at yourself, look in the mirror, take a hard look at yourself, ask yourself, are you happy? Are you doing what you've always wanted to do? Um, you know, not everybody is as lucky as me. And, and not a lot of people would say that with all of my health issues. I mean, Holly, two years ago, I was diagnosed with advanced Crohn's disease. Yes, I remember that too. And you know that. Uh-huh. And I was very sick, but I'm finally in remission. Um, most of people in my life don't even know that I have Crohn's. I'm not going to let, I don't let my sicknesses or illnesses define me, but they did make me who I am today. 
Yes, I agree with you because they're not your identity. You are no. your identity. What happened to you was your story and you use it to motivate other people. So that's your purpose. Yes. Um, and I, I just beg, urge people, like, live your life to the fullest. Figure out what your dreams are. You know, I always thought I was going to be a broadcast journalist. I was going to be on the news. But I was a very theatrical child. I was always in plays and um, taking drama classes during the summer. And I love to sing and I love to dance. Um, and right before the pandemic, the year before the pandemic, I was like, I, 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 I've got to, I've got to really think about things that I love. And one thing I love is like comedy and improv. I signed up for an improv class, took it, absolutely loved it. Um, like it was part of something I've always wanted to try, but I was always scared. But you pushed and yourself. You made yourself do it. I made myself do it. I did not know anybody that was going to be in my class. It was every Tuesday night from six to eight. I didn't know anybody. And, but I didn't want to ask any of my friends to do it with me because I wanted to take this journey by myself. I didn't want to be like a part of someone else's journey. I wanted it to be my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it. I loved it. I signed up for improv part two, then COVID hit and they had to cancel the classes. Um, so I'm still going to do part two. I'm just waiting for it to be safe again with my immune system. I don't want to be in a small classroom and, right. you know, you can't really do improv and be, you know, show your facial expressions under a mask. Um, yeah, that'd be kind of awkward. That'd, that'd be, be weird. Hard so, to but I am going to, I am going to do part two. It's not a question of if or when it's just when it's going to be safe again, actually. But, um, but I, I just beg everybody, like, if you're in a situation right now and you're not happy, you, ha- the only person that can change your situation is you. And you've got to have the confidence. You've got to have a backup plan and you've got to have a backup plan for the backup plan. Write your goals, write your wishes, write your dreams and see if you can make a diagram and include all of that and make that your life. And, and your viewers and your listeners know, Holly, that is exactly what you did. Yes, it is. It is exactly. Well, I cannot say I I went through two liver transplant and a no, but you transplant, but I had a plan. I had a plan. Yeah. And you did too. And you still do to this very day. Yes. But yes, I do. I do have a plan. I can't say it enough. All right. So for people to know, I, I am a volunteer for LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. And I'm on their, um, their foundation board. I'm a board member and I do speaking for them. I talk about the gift of life and how one person can save up to eight lives and the gift of life. And I also do motivational speaking, um, talking about how life is short and sweet, um, living life to the fullest, uh, and accomplishing your dreams now rather than later. I'm 52 years old right now. Um, and I am, I, I live in a beautiful home right now, but it's two story home and I don't have peripheral vision. So going up and down the stairs is an obstacle for me. I still do it, but it's probably not the smartest thing. So I decided during COVID pandemic that I was going to build a new house in my same neighborhood, but I was going to build buy two lots and build one big one story home 
Um, my parents are in their late seventies and eighties and they, they've lived in beautiful homes my entire life, but they just built after two years of building into their forever home. And I was looking at that and thinking, I don't want to wait till I'm in my seventies and eighties to move into my forever home. My forever is starting now. Good for you. So I'm building it. I'll be moving in in March or April. And it's, it's just about kicking life in the butt and saying, this is about me. This is my time. What do I do need to do now to make myself happy and live in my forever life now? Right. Like, don't don't what, wait. What don't do you wait? What are you waiting for? Because it's never exactly. gonna feel like the time is right. And I love your parents and they're precious. And I'm glad they got into their forever home. But it also inspired you to go, why do I need to wait? Why not and now? It's, and it's the question, if not now, when? Right. Exactly. And I'm coming to visit you. At your new house, by the way. Uh, I've got a room for you. Well, thank you. I'm bu- I built an extra room. You're, it's yours. Oh, it's my room. Great. I can, move back, I can move back to Baton Rouge now. Um, you should. <laughs> I know. I know. I think about that a lot. Um, how can people get in touch with you for speaking engagements or just yes. to get to know you better? Yes. Um, they can go to lopa.org and there is a drop down that says request a speaker. Terrific. Um, or they can email me at Wendy at Um, and I do motivational speaking, um, about obstacles, never letting an obstacle get in your way. Um, you also Holly do, the news. About, you, also uh, do the news, you also do news clips a lot. Like if any area yes. wants to hear more about, um, organ donation, you're, you're a spokesperson. Yeah, I do a lot of, um. I can't even think of the word right now. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, oh, drawing, sorry, I'm drawing a blank of the word. I'm, uh, a lot of commercials and ads, like you're saying. Yeah. Um, public service announcements. That's what I was trying to say. I do a lot PSA of public lady. service announcements. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, but I'm available for speaking about organ donation and how one person can save up to eight lives or about motivational speaking, overcoming obstacles. Um there's a term that I was Holly and I were talking about that I hate this term, but I don't know a better way to describe it. When I'm talking with my son, when he's trying to problem solve something, I always say there's more than one way to skin a cat. Now I don't know where that originated. I'm sure someone's going to know. It's very medieval. Imagine, but, but to me that means if one way doesn't work, try another way, and if that way doesn't work, try another way. Like don't give up because there's an obstacle or a roadblock. Go around it. Take a U-turn. Take a uh, new turn. You know, yeah. get off the exit and re-enter the interstate. Whatever you have to do to overcome it, do it. Like, challenges are always going to get in your way. Obstacles will always be there, but that is okay. Have a backup plan. And obstacles are okay. They make us stronger. They made me who I am today. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And now you get to tell other people about it and how to do it. Because you've survived it, girlfriend. You have survived I definitely survived and now- it. Now you're now you're thriving, and I am thriving. I'm not surviving anymore. I am thriving. You are thriving. I'm yep. happy. I don't think I've ever been happier in my life. Um, my son is doing great. My parents are great. My family's well, and I'm just so thrilled that I have another chance at life. And I'm I, at this chance in my life. I am going to do all the things I've always wanted to do, and I'm not going to look back and regret. Think you know? I don't want to. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. Right. I want to say that I've done, I saw, I've conquered, and hallelujah. You did it. And for those of you listening, get signed up to be an organ donor. 
please. Yeah. I have can't take went, your organs with you when you go to heaven. Can't take them with me. So yeah. get signed up. Make sure you do. The Wendy inspired me to do the same thing. Yeah, because it, it, it saved Wendy, and now she's trying to save others. It could save one person. It could save yep. eight lives. You can go to lopa.org to sign up online to be an organ donor. Oh, terrific. That was great information. Yes. Perfect. All right, GTFO listeners, that is a wrap for Season 4, Episode 6. Cheers. Until next time. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at gtfo underscore podcast. Thanks.